Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, my friend. It is just you and me for another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It's always good to see you. I think we've got uh, some interesting things to talk about in this episode of the Flight Safety Detectives. Uh, some new information coming out of uh, China with regard to China Eastern and how we relate it to some previous accidents that, uh, that we've both done. And then, of course, uh, we want to lead into uh, to the maintenance competition that we had spoke briefly about in one of our previous shows. So with that, I'm going to kick it off with you and, and talk about uh, the fact that uh, the Chinese have finally allowed the, uh, the NTSB to make an appearance over in China to assist them. So that's good news on, on that particular front. We're gonna have, uh, I think two or three people from the safety board over there uh, working with them on the recorders and uh, hopefully getting some good information. The big concern, John, that I have is that it's my understanding that the FAA may not have traveled and that could be critical only because if there is some sort of airworthiness issue with the aircraft, the FAA is in fact responsible for continued airworthiness of the airplane. So hopefully there's gonna be a very good dialogue with whatever the NTSB folks find and the Chinese in pumping that back to, uh, to the FAA with regard to any kind of airworthiness issue because that's only one aspect of this entire investigative process because as you and I talked earlier on a previous show, um, this also could be an intentional act, which again, creates a, a whole new aspect for the, uh, for the investigation of this accident. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate in these days, these times that we've seen, you know, starting with the, the German wings event and the Egypt Air is another one, you know, it seems to pop up we, we went for decades with none, none of these issues. And now all of a sudden we seem to be having them pop up uh, all too frequently, so. Yeah, and I, you know. I wonder what's going on. Yeah, you, you have to wonder that, uh, you know, back in 1998 when I did, um, did Silk Air, that was a big concern. And it happened at a time when we were having issues with rudder PCUs on 737s and so, that was a bit of a cloud there because we had to look at it from a mechanical standpoint to ensure that there was nothing wrong with the airplane and then shift the focus to more of a pilot operation and then it eventually evolved to an intentional act. Uh, we saw the same kind of thing with Egypt Air 990 because again, any investigation, John, 
for the folks that are listening or watching. You can never rule things in or out, even if you have so much evidence you can hold in your hand, because you got to be able to verify or vet that evidence um, as you get it. There had been a lot of information about one of the pilots on Egypt Air 990 and some of the issues, personal issues he was having um, with his family, uh, some characteristics or behavior issues that uh, he um, uh, basically engaged in when he was in a hotel. And so that became a, a bit of a storyline. But then, of course, you still have to worry about some mechanical aspects of the aircraft. And they started to find split flight controls and things like that. So for the investigators, you're, you're running very concentric investigations where you're looking at the human element, but you're also looking at the, the physicality of the aircraft itself to make sure that there wasn't anything as a cause or contributing factor. And again, we've seen that with other aircraft um, that have had structural repairs, because that is one aspect of this China Eastern 737. It's presumed to have been involved in a tail strike sometime prior to this accident. Of course, all the famous pictures and video that's sitting out there on the internet shows the airplane descending at a very high speed uh, with a um, um, very steep vertical profile uh, without the tail feathers, that is the horizontal stabilizer and the vertical stabilizer attached. And we've seen that kind of failure, not only with the JAL 747 that killed over 500 people, but we saw that again in 2003 or excuse me, 2002, with a China Air 747 that also had a aft pressure bulkhead blowout after a tail strike was improperly repaired. So the investigators have multiple things going on here. Yeah, I, I was uh, on the board when Egypt Air happened, and uh, we were proceeding with the mechanical side because there was some physical evidence that was recovered that really indicated a possibility of mechanical failure. But meanwhile, uh, we got word from New York City officials and, and came back that there was more at play than just uh, possibly a mechanical failure. So it was from the management side of that investigation, there was flipping back and forth between mechanical and other uh, human-driven issues uh, until the dust finally settled and and uh, we were able to figure out that it was human-driven uh, caused a crash. Yeah, and we saw that with Silk Air as well. Um, here we have an airplane. It's relatively brand new. It's halfway between Jakarta and Singapore, and it goes into a high dive from 35,000 feet. And at, the, at that time, our primary concern uh, going into that investigation was the rudder PCU because it, it, this accident had come just on the heels of uh, US Air 427, east winds, and, and a number of other um, rudder events that had taken place. And now we have one that's uh, coming out of the sky from 35,000 feet. We had to ensure that it wasn't a rudder PCU initiated event. And, and that became a central focal point for the investigation. Meanwhile, we still had to look at the rest of the airplane. We had to try and get as much data as we could off the flight data recorder, cockpit voice recorder. And then as that investigation progressed, we're able to narrow things down and, and determine that it wasn't uh, a physical problem with the airplane, but rather the issue was residing in the cockpit 
and it ended up being an intentional act. But like you said, John, things start to get muddy. You're bouncing back and forth because you get a bunch of evidence and you go, okay, we have a lot of evidence over on this side. And then all of a sudden you start developing more evidence on the other side. You go, well, we got to go back over here and look at this. And you bounce back and forth until one of those weighs more than the other. And, and that's what you pursue. You know, right there, it's a good point to, to, to raise this issue with the talking heads that we see on TV and also the people that run at the mouth on the internet, you know, and they, they focus on one issue and they run with it and carry it on. When we were, what we were just talking about, the people that have to bounce back and forth, they're not the investigative teams. It's the leadership teams. It's you at your level as an investigator in charge and the, and the folks back in the AS accident uh, investigations in DC. All right, that have to play these mental gyrations between uh, different looking at different problems. The teams continue to do their work independently. The engine people have a, a, a essentially a syllabus that they follow for an investigation of an engine and to, to run that to ground. So because there's a lot of activity around possibly uh, something happening in the cockpit, doesn't mean the engine people stop doing what they're doing. Yeah. They need to run the play sheet. It's essentially a checklist, run it to ground all those issues to make sure the engines had none of those problems or the hydraulic system had none of, none of the problems. And uh, a lot of these people I see making comments on the internet just fail to recognize that, that they're independent teams. You know, this, it's not uncommon to have like 15 independent teams working out there in the field, you know? The weather person, does he care what's going on in the cockpit? It's not a, not, not a concern to his at the time. His concern is gathering all the facts and circumstances around the weather. Yeah. Same thing with the witnesses, the hydraulic systems, the electrical systems. They're all focused on that narrow, narrow sliver of information around that airplane. And those have to all be worked clean. That's right. And you bring up a good point, John. And and just to reiterate, because you and I have done previous shows about the role and responsibility of the NTSB, the investigators in their respective disciplines. A couple things to add there. One, when the NTSB travels overseas, they aren't going to lead the investigation. They are going as technical advisors to whoever the investigative authority is. So the NTSB has sent two or three people over to China. China is still running the investigation. They are still responsible for determining all the facts, conditions, and circumstances. But now they've reached out to others as technical advisors to help them not only gather that information, but then interpret whatever factual information they may have uh, gleaned from the investigation process. When you talk about, John, uh, the engine guys have to do, they still have to do their investigation. One of the things we found in Silk Air, and we find it in a lot of accidents, but Silk Air is a perfect example, and that is, when we started to determine that it wasn't a rudder PCU that caused the airplane to depart controlled flight at 35,000 feet, that it wasn't a very steep descent profile that could not be flown by an autopilot or even a faulty rudder PCU initiated uh, roll event. One of the things that we started to look at, of course, is pilot operation. Now, anybody that flies airplanes knows that if you have enough altitude and you get into an unusual event, an unusual attitude event, and you have the ability to have references either outside the aircraft and or inside the aircraft that are reliable, 
of course, as pilots, we are trained to um, recover from these unusual attitudes. Here you got a 737 at 35,000 feet, goes into a roll event and is heading to the ground. Now, we've all been trained as pilots that in the recovery, you don't want to overspeed the airplane because the faster you go, you start pulling flight controls or turning uh, ailerons or running, you know, stomping on the rudder pedals, the high speed, you're going to overstress those flight controls and tear them off the airplane. In this particular instance, when we saw that the engines were at maximum power, that was not consistent with any kind of recovery. Then when we saw that the landing gear was still up and the flaps were still up and the speed brakes were still flat, they were not deployed. All of those things told us that that's unusual if you're trying to recover from a high speed dive, because we've been taught that, you know, if you get into any kind of controlled descent or even an uncontrolled descent, you want to start trying to slow the airplane down, power back to idle, throw out all the drag devices so that you can get control of the airplane, slowing it down. We didn't see that. And so those independent investigations of those respective components, when you bring them together and you put them in context, starts to build the story that if somebody was trying to recover this airplane, they would have done these things, but none of those things had been done. And, and so in the investigative process, and, and you brought it up with uh, the talking heads, and that is people that haven't been where you and I have been, they haven't been investigators, they're pilots who think they can be investigators. That's the problem is that they aren't in that, that realm. They haven't investigated like that. They haven't had to put those facts, conditions, and circumstances in context. They take a factoid and build a whole storyline around it, yet they, they throw away a lot of those other facts that will change that storyline. We saw it in MH370. We've seen it in the 737 MAX accidents that you and I have dissected. We see it all the time. And, and that's a disservice to not only the aviation industry, but to the family and the friends and the flying public because it's misinformation. It's a misdiagnosis that is not based on facts. Without a doubt. And, and you know, to have, to have some pretty otherwise knowledgeable people make that jump to, to essentialize, to, to get the headlines for themselves. Yeah. It, it's, it is painful for the families. Yeah. And, and, you know, China East or uh, China Airlines uh, flight 611. Um, that was a, a famous accident, especially over in Taiwan, because it killed over 200 people in that accident because the airplane, it was a 747 uh, 200 series airplane. And uh, it was the queen of their fleet. And it had been involved in a significant tail strike, a uh, significant period of time before the accident. Now the maintenance folks went in there and uh, they started to do, they, they put a temporary fix on it. They were able to ferry the airplane back to their home base where more permanent repairs were made. And it was during the course of making these permanent repairs that China Air's uh, own personnel department, our maintenance department had uh, done those structural repairs, but they failed to follow the Boeing structural repair manual for some reason. And, and that's eventually what led to uh, a subsequent failure of the aft pressure bulkhead on that particular airplane. And again, similar to JAL that happened years before, 
the whole tail section uh, came loose from the uh, back of the airplane. And of course, we lost over 200 people in that accident, which again, that's what the investigators will be looking at with China Eastern, if in fact, it does square that this 737 had been involved in a tail strike. But when we talk about the integrity of maintenance personnel, John, you're the one to speak to this, that it takes question, you have to question, why didn't they follow the manual? What did they think they knew that Boeing doesn't know about how to repair their own airplane, especially after a tail strike like this? Was it because they were trying to shortcut the process, get the airplane back in service? I mean, what's the mentality there? Well, there's some of that always in maintenance, trying to, you know, you got an airplane out of service, you're trying uh, desperately to get it back to service. And oftentimes you'll find that the individuals, and I succumb to this sometimes myself, uh, will put self-induced pressure on themselves uh, to get the, get the airplane done. Uh, usually it's not in the case of these big repairs, the airplane's clearly out of service and it's gonna be out of service for, you know, three or four days anyway. Uh, so usually you don't have that uh, feeling of that self-imposed pressure, but you have others and, then the, and some of it's cultural. I mean, I spent time over in China in this in the hangars in, the, in Taiwan or near Taiwan. I've been in the, in the hangar the China Airlines does all their work. And I've, I've walked around that place with and without a keeper. You know what I mean? Some facilities you go in and they, they won't let you take one step without having somebody hovering yeah. over you. And uh, I've been in their facilities just walking by myself and talking, uh, you know, sometimes there's no English, but, but uh, looking at what's going on. And I, you know, as far as the work, accomplishing the work, these guys in China can do the job and do it well, but they have the same problem there that you saw in Korea, that uh, I saw in mainland China. And that is when the boss says, you go here, you go there, and you don't question it. And it could very well be that maybe the engineers that they use to design this repair uh, were not the most knowledgeable, but they're the worker bee, sheet metal mechanic in this case, uh, that's putting the sheet metal on is not gonna push back. You know, and, I, and you read the report and you see that they, they had deep scratches and gouges yeah. that went far beyond the, the doubler. Well, give me a break. That's, I mean, that's a recipe for disaster. And any, any sheet metal person worth, worth his rivet gun uh, <laughs> would not do that, you know, would not do that. So, and I've done, and I've seen a lot of bulkhead repairs. And especially after the Air Canada bulkhead blew out of it, one of their DC-9s leaving Boston. And uh, that airplane was, was back in and, and all of us, you know, it's funny thing about maintenance. All right, so here we have Air Canada blows out their bulkhead, departing Boston, and they come back the will of uh, amazing feet getting that airplane back. And uh, they get the airplane and land. And of course, immediately there's this great big, you know, every suit in existence is climbing all over the airplane. But, you know, four or five, six days, I forget how many days later, the, the dust starts to settle. And uh, slowly the mechanics from around the airport, usually late at night, you know, like between uh, maybe eight o'clock at night and six o'clock in the morning, will find their way over and find somebody working on the airplane and want to see what's going on. And I did that myself. I work in midnight shift. You know, we got 
we went over and, and found somebody working and said, you know, I'd like to see what's going on. They took us in, gladly showed us. And what that did for us was gave us a place to go look because the next airplanes that came in, we were looking. Yeah. Right. Just to make sure that uh, none of our airplanes uh, had that same problem. And, that, and that's another thing that we we do as maintenance people. That's our airplane. You know, the Japanese have really formalized that. Yeah. But, but uh, informally, most mechanics will say, that's my airplane. You know, you know, and one of the things, John, that, you know, you bring up and, and that is it is your airplane. I mean, when that airplane goes into the hangar, um, the people that are touching it um, have to take pride and have to work at 150 percent. We have seen deficiencies where you have good people that have made mistakes. We saw that with Eagle Lake, Texas and that uh, de Havilland, what was it, Dash 7 or Dash 8, where they forgot to zip up the top of the horizontal stabilizer and sent the airplane back to the line and eventually the tail eventually came apart so it, it's not an being, embry, it was an embryo embry yeah and so we're not being critical of that but <clears throat> where you have a, a very smart competent crew who doesn't use the structural repair manual and tries to make a repair and and one of the recommendations that came out was of course having uh, their airplanes inspected, China airs, and I think uh, probably happened all over the world. And that is looking for patches that may have been put on the bulkheads and stuff that could have hidden damage. And, and you find them. After the, after the Air Canada thing, we found a few patches back on, uh, on some cargo DC-9s where they had driven the pallets uh, back. The cargo loading people are not very uh, friendly to airplanes. They really abuse the airplanes. And we found uh, a couple of airplanes with pretty severe damage to the bulkheads. Uh, you know, it, and again, in this particular instance, you know, there were a number of recommendations that were made. But you and I have talked about, of course, this on a previous show, and that is um, one of the uh, recommendations that came out from the uh, Chinese in this, in, in this particular accident was the fact that they wanted Boeing field service reps to be more involved. And, and over the years, that, that program has expanded. And one of the things that you and I questioned when we dissected the Lion Air accident, 610, was why didn't Lion Air reach out to Boeing and the Boeing field service rep and say, we got a problem with our angle of attack indicator vanes. We need new ones rather than go to the black market, if you will, down in Miami and, and buy a uh, an AOA bay that wasn't even for that airplane. Well, I have my own theories about that. Okay? And, and it basically it is that I wouldn't go to Boeing because Boeing would tell me to fix it. They would tell me to stop that airplane and fix it. And we know that that airplane was flying for 29 days prior to the crash uh, with this problem on the airplane. And, and they were aware of it. So they would stay far away from Boeing just to, to uh, not get the answer they don't want to hear, you know, and I and I see in this report, and here it is, you know, 20 years ago, but even in this report, they don't even touch the the, the accomplishment of the work in the report. I mean, these guys put patches on the airplane with deep gouges and scratches underneath it, which are, are just breeding grounds for cracks, 
and yet they don't address that at all in this because I think they didn't want to address it either because it's where the work gets accomplished. And we've got the same problems here in this country. We've, we've turned a blind eyes to a lot of the maintenance uh, problems because they just don't want to get and fix them. So and we then, keep yeah, it at a high level, we don't get down to the bottom. And, and that's, that, that brings me up to the next subject. And that is of course, uh, the maintenance competition that you run and the integrity of maintenance personnel. Look, as a pilot, I know I can't go anywhere in my airplane without having my airplane mechanically sound. And the only way it gets that way is having a competent uh, mechanic maintenance tech working on my airplane, doing the things that need to be done, um, fixing it properly, not shortcutting it, not coming up with, you know, some, you know, quasi made up fix. I expect, and I have a lot of tacit trust in the mechanic that works on my airplane. Do I question them? Absolutely. Do I want to know what they touch? You better believe it. But you as a, as a pilot have to really turn that trust level to high when you're dealing with a mechanic. And while, you know, the pilots of you know, China 611 and, and all the other airplanes that have had problems, yeah, you can't get in there and see what they fixed and talk to the mechanics and see how robust the fix was and all. I mean, that's not practical in any way, shape or form, but it's, it's kind of like that sign that says, do the right thing, even when nobody's looking. That's the kind of thought process that we have is we hope that they're doing the right thing, even when nobody's looking. Because as me, uh, for me as a pilot, I have to do the same thing. I have to do the right thing, even when I don't have either a company or the FAA looking over my shoulder or another pilot or even a passenger, I have to do the right thing. I cannot take those shortcuts. And the competition that you run, John, recognizes those people that are operating at the highest levels in their profession. And I think that um, you know, pilots get all the accolades when they save the day uh, with an airplane. Um, they also take a, a brunt of, uh, of the hit when, uh, whenever there's an accident and it's deemed pilot error. But uh, I think that the unsung heroes are the maintenance techs. Why? Because they're working in a hangar. They're out of sight. Nobody knows they really exist. They work at night. Um, they're working in the hell holes of the airplane. They're working inside fuel tanks and things like that. And there's probably been a lot of saves of an airplane due to the fact that the airplane went in for either routine maintenance or some issue that didn't lead to an accident or incident. And it was really by uh, the, um, the perseverance or at least the knowledge and skills of the maintenance tech that they found a potentially catastrophic problem that could have manifested itself on the next flight into a, a really bad accident, they were able to prevent that kind of thing. And I think this competition that you have and that you put together recognizes those skilled people. Yes, we try to, we try to challenge them. You know, a good mechanic has to use all his senses. You know, what you do with visual inspections, you need to know what you're looking at. So it takes some knowledge and understanding to do that. Do you use the sense of smell? You sure do. Uh, and taste sometimes. I mean, you, you got a fluid leak. Hopefully it's not blue fluid, which is from the <laughs> lavatories. But you might, you might. Yeah, you're not going to do a taste test there, are you? Do a taste test on is, is it oil or what? Or, or is it fuel? I mean, I've done that a lot myself. 
and and I don't think I ever got blue fluid. I was going to say that answers a lot of questions that you were tasting a lot of stuff. Right. Well, it's, there's a lot of chemicals on on and around airplanes. Yeah. And and uh, but a mechanic needs to use all his senses, and the better ones routinely use them all. You know, we're all human, so we're not everybody's going to be the ace of the base, so to speak. Uh, but they all have different skills. I mean, I had guys that that if you gave them an electrical problem, get out of their way because they're going to dig into it and they're going to fix it. And other guys that were uh, good in sheet metal and and uh, so you 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 know if you were running a crew on, on midnight shift like I was, you oftentimes had to play chess with your people, not checkers. You had to move the skills around to get the job done in the time that you had to do it. And uh, you know it's it's what we do all the time and routinely, as you said. In the competition, we try to replicate that, and it's pretty hard uh, to replicate it all. But we've been getting better at it, so that the the, the you know, we used to have a safety wire as one of the testing, and we've dropped that one. We've dropped safety wire and replaced it with something that requires a little more hand and mind uh, coordination. And we, you have to use the manuals. So we provide the manuals or the instructions, but we don't say use them. And if they don't use them, there's a penalty hmm. that goes with it. So just to remind people that you, you use the manual and uh, taking orders from people that are not around. So we've had uh, a skill where one mechanic would be on a, on a, a, a computer on the far end of the room, and these are huge halls. These are not just rooms. And the mechanic would be over here, and it happened to be a pedestal. We had a pedestal out of an MD-80, and he had to make a repair. And the guy on the, on the other end is looking at the camera, telling him what to do. Right. So using the skills and manual resources of, of a mechanic that's not physically there to get the job done. How did and, this, John, uh, how did this skills competition come about just in, in a Reader's Digest version? And, and then, you know, what, what is it about the teams that participate and, and what do they get out of it for winning? All right. So it started some over 20 years ago. And it, it was part of PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association. And it actually started as an outgrowth of what they called the Chili Cook-Off. It was a gathering at one of their conferences every year, the annual conference. And they somehow, and I don't remember how now, but they started a Chili Cook-Off as a, a night where everybody could get together. Uh, the day was full of, of uh, teaching events, inspection authorizations, uh, renewals, and all that. Anyway, it, it grew out of that. And then they, then they formalized it and they made it. And it, it was small. It, it had four or five competitions and that's where the safety wire came from. And then we grew, grew it with wheels, change a wheel and a brake. So it, it went on slowly. And uh, then about eight years ago, roughly, uh, a friend of ours, Tom Hendershot, mm -hmm. who was running it died. And the competition was was faltering, and I went in and swooped in and I took it over, and I ch changed it dramatically, changed the, lo the location where it was done, changed the texture and the the, the tests. I reached out to the industry, uh, and they responded, and we've gotten. I mean, we have state of the art tests now. Barfield Instruments uh, last year gave us a test. 
that nobody has ever seen before. Mm-hmm. It was a brand new test equipment they had. So that meant that the, the mechanics from the airlines that were there were in no better position than the, the student mechanics that we get from the schools and the military. So it, it's been expanded considerably and it's, it's really something to see. And the effort that gets put in uh, by the young the students in the military, everybody wants to show themselves good. And the proof in the pudding for me has been how many of the mechanics get get jobs. Well, we've ha- we're having them hired right off the hang of, uh, off the, the testing floor. Wow. Delta Delta swoops in it and uh, has picked them up. United, I stood next to the, the VP of uh, of line maintenance for United. You know, about three years ago, I'm standing next to him and we're watching teams and it's a woman team from a school in California. And he interrupts this conversation and calls over one of his, one of the people that work for United, full-time United presence and said, you see that woman over there? She's on underneath the engine right now. He said, yeah. He said, go hire her. Hmm. Just like that, go hire. And she went to work for United. Wow. She- San Francisco. How many teams typically? How many teams typically compete now? Uh, we we're running the maximum we can handle is ninety. Last year we had like eighty-seven. Right now we have eighty-one for this year's competition. Each team is five people. Every team comes with one or two extras because there's always something. People have family emergencies. Things pop up, so they bring like a coaching their own coaching team, and they have people to jump in. In fact, one year we had. We had uh, one team uh, lost a member and they had no replacement. They came with five and, uh, and we actually had somebody volunteer from one of the other companies and use one of their spare people on that team so they could wow. compete. And uh, it's a load of fun. And one of the things that I really love about it is the mentoring that's going on because it only, it only takes a you know, few minutes and all of a sudden the airline people are trying to help these young people get along and, it, they didn't understand this part of the test. They'll they'll show them. Uh, it it really is amazing, and and they are the cream of the crop. You'll get to see it if you come. Uh, you'll get to see it. Well, you know, I'm I'm coming because uh, I've got to do some MC work for you, so I have to be there. But for our audience, where's it going to be? When's it going to be? And um, and what do the winners get? I'll start with the pill in. All right, so. There is a, a number of prizes. The big, the big number prize is uh, Snap-on. Snap-on has been a supporter of this competition way before I got involved with it. And this, this year, uh, they're going to give away $75,000 worth of tools wow. to the winners. And everybody that comes, everybody that comes to compete gets this year a quarter-inch drive set from Snap-on, which is worth about 125 bucks. All right, that's just for showing up, they win that. And uh, there's a whole host of other companies that give away all sorts of stuff. I mean, it, t- it takes us, it takes us uh, three quarters of a day to award all the prizes and give them away. We're trying to figure out how to streamline that so it goes a little quicker. But it's talk faster, John. Yeah. And we have uh, this year, we have members from every single military branch including the Canadian military. We have uh, three all-girl teams from Canada. I think we have 41 women competing this year on teams. Uh, We have six countries represented and 27 states. Wow. 
Uh, that's awesome. So it's it's huge. It's huge. It, it's actually uh, grown bigger than I expected. And it's unfortunate we can't get any bigger. 90 teams really stretches us. So we're happy when it's uh, down closer to 80 because it it uh, it makes for a long day. This year we got we've had to we contracted somebody to automate the scoring system for us to try to make that go quicker. So we're trying a lot of things and and we're having more and more involvement. So we, we put an advisory board together, a board of directors together, and we have the vice presidents of maintenance set. Alaska, Southwest, American, United, JetBlue, and Delta sit on the board. Wow. Pratt and Whitney sits on the board. All right. It just so it's it's really something to see where maintenance, like you said, was always in the background working nice and the rest of it. And right now, as part of the uh, uh, Weekly's MRO process, uh, we're there to let, it's, they expect 12 to 14,000 people there for the MRO. So we're going to, they usually all come over and see us because we make so much noise. Yeah, well, that's we good. Got, we got a lot of students and they aren't, they can be noisy. Good. Cheering and hooting for each other, so. Well, we'll follow up on uh, on this show with the winners once the competition is done, just to uh, to recognize their efforts. Because I've been there several times, and um, it is amazing to watch. Um, it's uh, it is definitely a well choreographed uh, dance when you see each of these teams doing their respective work, and um, not only the hand eye coordination. But like we have in the cockpit with crew resource management, you have a lot of crew resource management with these teams as they perform their respective tasks and that kind of stuff. So it is uh, definitely interesting. It's kind of like watching a NASCAR race and watching the pit crew come out, do their respective work, racing the clock, but doing it right every single time. So it is a uh, lot. It is a lot like that NASCAR team. And, and just to watch the kids, the young people, they, They'll just pull up and sit on the floor and they'll be breaking out the instructions and they'll together, three or four of them will be going over what they need to do. And it is really unbelievable to see the, the yeah. dynamics behind all of this. And that's what we need in, uh, in aviation and aerospace is, is more recognition because uh, um, right now we got a pilot shortage, we got a mechanic shortage, we got an air traffic control shortage, we got shortages everywhere in aviation. And these are the kinds of things that I think really demonstrate and, and reach out to young people to say, hey, look, you know what? I can do this, that, you know, these aren't just old guys doing this or old gals doing this. I mean, there's a, there's a place for me in this part of the uh, aviation community. And, and I think that's a good outreach program. So, well, we've, uh, we've run our uh, time as, uh, as we've talked about a number of things on today's episode of Flight Safety Detectives, we always appreciate your feedback. So definitely uh, get in touch with us. And of course, uh, we always, <laughs> with the emails that we have been getting, we're uh, of course designing some of the shows around some of the feedback. So you'll be hearing some subjects here in the uh, not too distant future based on, uh, on the feedback. So with that, my friend, I know you're gonna be traveling, I'm traveling uh, again. As usual, we are going to run across each other, hopefully, possibly next week uh, in the same place. And so I'm looking forward to seeing you in person, as I always do. So 
I will, since Todd isn't with us today, I will leave you with the last words. And as I always say, please, if you're going to go flying, do a good session of pre-planning before you even leave your house. Decide what you're going to do. When you get to the airport, do it again. And when you get out to your airplane, do a good walk around. If it's a small enough airplane, touch your airplane. Because the things you tough, touch as you look at them, you're going to remember. You'll find things that you didn't expect to find. And after you've gotten all done and doing your pre-flight in the cockpit, when you start flying, keep that head on a swivel. We saw recently the mid-air collisions uh, go up. So please, please pay attention to all of those details because we don't want to lose any listeners. That's right. right? They're hard to come by. Yep. So, so please pay attention and fly so safe. Keep subscribing to, uh, to us on YouTube and, of course, your favorite podcast provider um, because that's how we gauge that we are getting our message across. So, Yes. And if you're a student pilot and you're going out uh, to fly, make sure you have renter's insurance. Uh, it's, it's finally coming up and people are finally taking a look at it. But, you know, you are not covered. The flight instructor has insurance, but it doesn't cover you. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888 888- 879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.